It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a fatigue, listen to yourself, the world, with its own needs. Something in your own head, beat it up, and I've seen got no sheets. The ladder puts the ladder with the fear fight down. I fire in the fire, with the system of the gang, the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're eating it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. The end of the world and the hour of doom. And bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a wonderful way to wander around in a very worrisome world. I'll say. <laughs> How about you? I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 900, closing in on 1,000 actually, Posts, well, videos. You better get to writing. I know. I'm. What's up? I'm, I got cramps. Writer, I got writer's cramps. <laughs> <laughs> but we have posts, videos, podcasts, all sorts of stuff on medical preparedness for any disaster. And you are. I am Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy, and I am a certified nurse midwife and an advanced registered nurse practitioner. All those initials after your name. I am very impressed. You, you think are, I'm going to forget that one day? Uh, well, you're, all, well, you have a lot of initials after your name. It Sometimes really I'm like, true. wait, what else am I? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Our oh mission, goodness. to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster. We are the prodigious pair, the beauty and the beast. <laughs> but if anyone calls Amy a beast... I'm going to go do, after you them. You do sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. That's typical for husbands and wives. You know what, folks? You don't always get along, and that's okay. Be honest. Get yeah. it out. Do not go to bed thinking, I hate him. That's uh, terrible. Because in the morning, I don't know, it hurts your love, I think. Oh, boy. This is not a marriage counseling show, buddy. Well, you said something about the beast, so. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted well, to clarify that you're not a beast either, I, that it's okay if you get mad sometimes, that's all. That is very good advice, actually. <laughs> we are here. Yes. To help you keep it together, wait, even if everything else falls apart. Where are we? Should we We are here, that? yes. We are in beautiful Gatlinburg, Tennessee. It is heating up, though. It was so nice last week. What did it get into the... 40s at night yeah oh wow it was so beautiful and the now, breeze although i shouldn't call it a breeze it's more like a windstorm right we actually had winds of uh, 60 miles an hour it really actually, gusts up to 80 we actually really showed us how the 
storm, uh, the firestorm that occurred Could here have moved so quickly. in last November mm-hmm. it moved so quickly and, and caused so much damage. It's oh, we really should talk about that, too, because we actually did drive around. We hadn't driven around last week too much. That's true. That's we're true. We're able to... Yeah, we found a lot of areas where homes are just burnt to the foundation, and I don't know how they're ever going to rebuild all of this stuff. It's going to be years. The problem is they don't have the number of people available. Right. The constru- construction companies are limited, and especially up on these mountains. These hills, <laughs> sometimes you're going up and then you're going around a corner. So, How do they you get know, those big trucks you know that up one there? around yeah. Ski View Drive? Drive. Yeah. Uh-huh. You, you're going up and then it takes a sharp, it's not even 90 degrees, it's more than that. Or I should say less than that because you're you're almost making a total U-turn. It's an acute but angle. you're still going up. I don't know how those big trucks, construction trucks, get up there. They're professionals. That's how they get up there. I wouldn't be driving it. That looks scary. <laughs> anyway, where were you? <laughs> well, we I don't know where I was. Figure oh, our our ad. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with a barbarous black bear? Well, they're all over the place. Well, I wouldn't say here. that's an ad. You're getting ready to <laughs> for me to do the disclaimer. Uh, that's you said right. it's an ad. <laughs> well, it's an ad for an attorney, but our attorney says call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists. Or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Narsimi strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. And I apologize if the folks who listen to this on a regular basis hear that in their sleep or in their nightmares (laughs) repeating. Like, oh, this is the thousandth time uh, I've heard this. I'm well, sorry. <laughs> the reason why we do it is that we're retired, but we have active medical licenses. We'd like True. to keep them. And yes. so that's why we give a disclaimer, Please. just like any medical site, w- website, or a medical show would mm-hmm. do. So the truth of the matter is, is that you don't have to listen to a thing we say, but that's in true. a disaster, you know what? You might be the highest medical resource left to your family. So show the world you got more sense than the nearest stump (laughs) and learn what to do for injuries and illnesses and disasters. And while you're at it, get some supplies and a medical kit to go along with that knowledge. And what better place to get it than the lovely Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated but never equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They will help you handle medical issues when the poop hits the propeller. That's for sure. And they're designed by, indeed, a doctor and a nurse practitioner. Compare- See, you almost forgot. <laughs> I almost forgot. It's true. I, I challenge you out there to compare our kits for contents, quality, and cost with anyone else's stuff. And you're going to agree one of our kits is the one you should have in your medical storage. Hey, what's the news, Baby Blues? You know, we learn as much from you as you do from us. Probably a heck of a lot more. So why not connect with us? It's so easy. And here's the lovely Nurse Amy to tell you how. (laughs) Email us anytime at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on Facebook at our group Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones, and Nurse Amy. A couple of Facebook pages, Doom and Bloom and Doctor, and that's spelled out, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy Show. We have a Twitter, at Prepper Show, 
And don't forget our YouTube channel at DR Bones Nurse Amy and our other podcast about current events and political stuff if you're interested. American Survival Radio. And that is with Genesis Communications Network, GCNlive.com, and also broadcast from a number of radio stations throughout the country. Uh, KPJC in Salem, Oregon, KRFE in Lubbock, Texas, KFAR in Fairbanks, Alaska, and a number of internet radio stations, the Prepper Broadcasting Network, Survival Central, KIMB, Talk 365, and Shake and Wake Radio, and a whole bunch of others. And don't forget to come see us when we travel the country spreading, spreading the good news of medical preparedness. I have my calendar here. Yeah, we'll be all over the country next year. And where are we going to be next? Okay, let's see. Well, we're doing our class tomorrow in Kodak, Tennessee. Yay! We could talk about that next that week. That'll be is so cool. Today, for people listening on the day that we broadcast. So tough, you missed it. <laughs> <laughs> you are so bad, honey. Well, anyway, the class is May 13th. We'll do other ones, don't worry. Yeah, that's true. Um, let's see. We will be in Texas, Irving, Texas, which is actually right where the airport is, the Dallas. Fort Worth Airport, Irving Convention Center, Self-Reliance Expo. Please, folks, if you live in Texas, come say hi. That's right. Odd schedule. It is Friday from 11 to 5. I know it's a Friday, but maybe you're off. That would be great. Saturday uh, is a full day, a normal day. But Friday is actually the suture class. No, I'm sorry, I'm doing the bleeding control class. That's a new class. What would people learn in your new class? Oh my gosh, so many things. They're going to learn how to use pressure dressings, how to stop hemorrhaging. What is blood? How much blood can you lose before it's all over, folks? What's in blood? How to use tourniquets. And this is a hands-on class, too. So you'll actually be using an Israeli pressure dressing. We'll be doing three different tourniquets. Again, you will be learning those. The soft T, the SWAT and the cat tourniquet will teach you everything you need to know to hopefully save a life when someone is hemorrhaging to death and we'll also be giving you a couple of goodies to take home so we'll have uh, i think a good old time doing that you know we've done the suture class so much in uh the texas in that area, area. i wanted so to offer something, something new well you know a lot of people have issues with worrying about getting just injured even where in their kitchen, a kitchen cut from a knife, if it's deep enough, can cause significant blood loss before emergency personnel can get to you. So it doesn't have to be that you've been shot by an active shooter or in a hunting trip accident. It can be in your own home, chopping wood, a chainsaw. There's so many things. And folks, you think nothing's going to happen to you, and then bam, it does. That's the scary thing. That is true. The We're next- all- the next place we'll okay. be is June 10th and 11th. We'll be in Burlington, Vermont, which seems to be up in the middle of Nowheresville. Yeah, close <laughs> near, to Canada. Near probably. Canada, right? Yeah. Way yeah, up there. Fun thing is we're going to fly into Boston, and we love history, so we're going to see some things in Boston and then make that long drive up to Vermont. Next thing we'll be is in uh, Ohio, Bowling Green. I think last week I said yep, just bowling. Right. <laughs> <laughs> bowling Green. And that's a, an Oath Keepers show. It's actually called the Ohio Prepper Show. We'll do a suture class on June 25th. And then we are not anywhere until mid-August. And we're actually going to go to something fun and different. We're going to go to the Ultimate Outdoor Expo in Lexington, 
Kentucky, and that is a three-day event, August 25th, 26th, and 27th. And I will not get into September yet because we've got three shows in September. <laughs> wow. Okay. Woo! Well, as Then you it's can, time for a little time off again, babe. As you can see, we're going to be all over the place this year <laughs> spreading the good word of yeah. medical preparedness. <laughs> hey, you know, one of the first articles I wrote on the subject of medical preparedness was partly related to expiration dates on medications. I mean, if medications aren't effective as they get older, not really much use to the medic when a disaster throws them off the grid. So it's pretty darn important to know whether it's worth stockpiling drugs for long-term survival scenarios. So let's start talking about what an expiration date actually signifies. An expiration date is defined as the last day that a medicine is warranted to be safe and effective when stored properly by the pharmaceutical company. Now, I've written for years that this date is often arbitrarily determined. Oftentimes, they'll just use 12 or 18 months as a standard practice, and it gets you to buy, of course, throwaway medicines and, and buy new ones on a pretty regular basis. That gets pretty expensive. And I say that the idea that all medicines somehow spoil around the same time after their expiration dates is just plain old incorrect. And now my opinion is seeing some support. A new study reports that an important medical product that prevents death from severe allergic reactions, also called anaphylaxis, we've talked about that in the past, you'll find that in a lot of our previous shows, can still be used effectively maybe even years after the expiration date on the package. The California Poison Control System in San Diego tested 40 unused expired EpiPens, the very famous product, very important for people that are having severe allergic reactions, and they found that all, yes, all of them, still retained at least 80% active epinephrine, the main ingredient, and this was true even for EpiPens that were closing in on the four-year expired mark. The least potent device was found to be at 81%, and that was 30 months past the expiration date. Most of them were actually at 90% or above. EpiPens are really expensive items and sometimes in very short supply. The lead researcher at the, of the California study, his name is F. Lee Cantrell, concludes that those people unable to replace the product should hold on to it for use even past the expiration date. He says there's still a dose that would be therapeutic in there. He also says that if an expired EpiPen is all that I have, I would use it. He suggests it might be appropriate for the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, and Mylan, M-Y-L-A-N, the company that distributes EpiPen, to consider adjusting the expiration dates. Indeed, right now, the drug expires, as I mentioned previously, 12 to 18 months from the date of manufacture. Of course, in normal times, a recommendation is to replace expired EpiPens, and this is not a bad idea. And as a matter of fact, I think you should always have a number of EpiPens, not just one, especially if you are putting them in medical storage for uh, situations where you might be off the grid and spending a lot of time outdoors. Uh, and this new information is of use, I think, for people who can't afford to replace the EpiPen often, and also to those in the preparedness community who store these medical items. Now, the recommendation given by the California Poison Control System is a rare departure from standard conventional, conventional medical wisdom, which states that drugs should be disposed of as soon as they become expired. But even the Department of Defense has determined that many medicines are 100% effective and safe to use, even if expired. The date can be found 
uh, I mean, I'm sorry, this data can be found in the July 2006 issue of the Journal of Pharmaceutical Sciences. Sometimes it's hard to get a hold of that, but you might be able to find it by looking up something called the Shelf Life Extension Program, or SLEP, which which was the name of this government program to evaluate it. And they indeed evaluated 122 drugs commonly stored for use in peacetime disasters. They determined that most drugs in pill or capsule form were therapeutically effective for two to 10 years beyond the written expiration date. And I suspect some of those that were two years, uh, probably were only two years expired at the time that they were evaluated. So all this led to the government issuing something called emergency use authorizations for various expired medicines whenever a shortage occurred uh, for those particular medicines. And one example is the antiviral drug Tamiflu. There was a swine flu epidemic in 2009. Existing supplies of tam Tamiflu were rapidly uh, gobbled up, and so they authorized or made an emergency use authorization for Tamiflu up to five years after the expiration date. Later, when the military bought up a lot of doxycycline on the market, which is something that treats anthrax, they sent out an emergency use authorization for that antibiotic for a period of up to 10 years. Sometimes that they can rescind these, th these authorizations when the supply goes back up or when the particular issue, let's say the swine flu epidemic, goes away, but many times they'll keep them in place. There's actually a Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, and under Section 564 of it, the FDA commissioner may, allowed, uh, may allow unapproved medical products, such as expired drugs or other products used in, emer in emergency, to diagnose, treat, or prevent serious diseases when there are no adequate approved and available alternatives that is the right of the fda commissioner and they've done it not only for medicines but they've done it for tests that were difficult to uh, produce and or, or were in short supply so they've done it quite quite a bit and it also or the fda may also extend the expiration date of any medical item that's stockpiled for use in a national or regional emergency if the extension is supported by, of course, an appropriate scientific evaluation like the Shelf Life Extension Program. For each expiration date extension granted, the FDA has to identify the specific lots, the batch, or other units of the products, and, of course, the duration of the extension, how many years you can use it after the expiration date. Now, interestingly enough, in SLEP studies, or Shelf Life Extension program studies, drugs in liquid form didn't fare as well, which makes the EpiPen data so interesting because it uses a liquid solution of epinephrine. Now, granted, 100% potency would have been better, but 80 to 90% would still have a beneficial effect on a severe allergic reaction. I would love to see studies done on other expired liquids, things like expired insulin, to find out exactly how fast after expiration it loses its effect. Is it like the EpiPen? Is it still 80% effective after a couple of years? Or is it down to 20% after two to three months expired? I don't know. But if you out there have a link to this kind of information, please email, um, email me. I am so interested in that. And the email address 
if uh, you didn't get it from when Amy mentioned it, is Dr. Bones, Dr. Bones, podcast, this is a podcast, at AOL.com. All right, back to EpiPen. It just can't seem to stay out of the headlines. Uh, there was a scandal with Mylan Corporation in 2016 where the company increased the price from about 100 bucks per two-pack in, I think, 2010 to $600 in 2016. And because of that, you can imagine that an extended shelf life for this product would be super welcome news, especially for the preparedness community. If you didn't see the story, the EpiPen was manufactured by not actually Mylan, who distributes it, but a subsidiary of Pfizer Pharmaceuticals, a big drug company. Uh, and the Mylan Corporation has about 90% of the distribution market. In 2015, this market was so big that it was up to $1.5 billion. Well, in a move I described in a previous article as profiteering, which is what I still feel, Mylan, Mylan raised the U.S. price from about 100 bucks to 600 bucks, And the funny thing is that it's still less expensive in the U.K. and Canada. Now, here's a real scandal that the devices deliver about $1 worth of the drug. So that, I think, was pretty obscene. And Mylan, <clears throat> as a result, got in trouble with the government and had to pay a fine in the, I don't know, like $200 million fine, something ridiculous. And uh, they, in turn, decided to release a, quote, generic version of EpiPen and they did it at the very low price of $300 per two-pack. Thanks a lot. Well, it should be noted that potency <laughs> over... I know, really, huh? It, it, it should be... I think that was a little sarcastic. I, <laughs> yes, you have the concept of sarcasm it. down pat. I got it. I got it. <laughs> well, it should be noted that potency of a drug over time is affected by storage conditions. Now, most medicines should be stored in dry, cool, and dark conditions allowing your EpiPen to be exposed to high heat or freezing it definitely could affect its, uh, its, effective, affect its effectiveness. <laughs> well, what else are you going to say? <laughs> that's, that's a perfect way to I just got to get a it. thesaurus out and find a different ad adjective. It's or affect, verb. it's effectiveness. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, many physicians, conventional physicians, as you can imagine, especially not prepper physicians, are mm -hmm. greeting the findings of this study a little skeptically, but you want to know something? I consider it more evidence that expiration dates are sometimes artificially determined and that those people that are storing medicines for use in disaster settings might get more longevity out of their supply than they might expect. Sure, get fresh medicines if they're available, but think twice before throwing out your last EpiPen. Sometimes something is better than nothing. And I'll take 80%, 90% over nothing any day. Absolutely. I agree 100%, honey. It's the same thing with the other solid medicines. If you have Tylenol that's 10 years old and you've got a terrible headache and no other medicine, try it. You might have to take an extra one, but it might do the job. See, the thing is they give you a dosage of medicine for one tablet. Okay, let's say it's a 500 milligram tablet. Maybe your body only needed 
200 milligrams to take that headache away. Or maybe your body only needed 300 milligrams, but they don't make those tablets in multiple milligram doses. So if it's less effective and say it's 80% effective and it's, it's worth 400 milligrams, it may still work because maybe the 300 or 200 milligrams would have been enough for your headache anyway. Exactly. And, so, and even if it didn't work, you know, even with, even with the EpiPens that are fresh EpiPens, mm -hmm. they tell you if you don't get the desired effect, use a, a second, second one. one. Right. So in, in truth, everybody gets a different effect from exactly. various medicines. I mean, uh, a Advil might take care of your headache better than a Tylenol would, or in some other, or the the next guy, a Tylenol might do a better job on your headache than an Advil. Would. Exactly, in different dosages too. Sometimes you don't need as much as is in the minimum dosage that you can you can buy that you can ingest. Um, so the least, right. the lower effectiveness doesn't mean it's not going to work for you. That's not going to depends on how bad yes, things exactly. are. No. If you've broken your ankle, excuse me, um, you know, eighty percent might not be enough. You might have to take two of them, but maybe you have to take the third because you needed more. And call me in the morning. Call you and take <laughs> take two aspirin. aspirin. Don't take a lot of aspirin though. Only take a little bit of aspirin. Every day it was the baby aspirin. And call me. You in the can morning. actually need to do a show, I think, to talk about the effects of aspirin. Okay. They've got so many new things that come out about the health benefits of taking just a, a little bit of aspirin every day. Sure, it's good for, for the women. Heart, good for, they yep. say it reduces breast, breast cancer, cancer risk. So anyway, I was saying, women. You should you should do a part on that too. I will work. I'm on just going to add that to your. Just add that to my hundred hundreds of plus items on my list. <laughs> Where am I going to write this down? <laughs> I don't have any paper. Anyway. Hey, have you experienced the joy and satisfaction that goes with helping the elderly? <laughs> the elderly, yes. Make an old man very happy. That's me, by the way. <laughs> by checking out our brand new, actually not so new now, it's been out for a few months, 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, the essential guide for when medical help is not on the way. It's now available on Amazon, doomandbloom.net. covers 150 different medical topics. You will be glad to put this in your survival library. And I just want to mention something. There will not be another 700-page revised edition of this book. That is the third edition. That third edition is going to be the same edition that's out 10 and 20 years from now. Oh, I promise you. Oh, wait a minute. Nope. The only Why? Because I'm going to be dead? No, because we're not rewriting another 700-page book. That's it. <laughs> However. I might. Someday. But not soon. We, exactly. Someday we might go with my idea, which is just an addendum from the last published date, and just put out a, a little bitty booklet. You know, with the latest, greatest things that you've discussed or I've discussed sometimes, and just put that out as a little little booklet to add. That's like, not a bad along idea. Along the book. That's not a but bad. But there will not idea. be another big book. So if you're waiting for the next giant book to come out that's a thousand pages, don't hold your breath. Well, it will be a while. <laughs> if if we it do would that, have to be it will be a two while. bucks. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, trust me, folks. I'm not letting him do it. We'll, we'll put together a little addendum. So just buy the book. You don't have to wait and 
think that we're putting out a new one any second. By the way, most people, I noticed that most people have the second edition. That book is still on sale on Amazon, but look for the the third edition. (laughs) It's got more information, retooled, and lots of great information in there. It's 125 pages or so more. And more illustrations. We so, did the medical so consider list. Consider the third edition. Please. Do you hear the bird outside? The bird's going crazy. I hear him screaming. We put the and bird laughing. outside, so he's yelling. We had to. He's absolutely sounds like a lunatic. He'd be disruptive. There's neighbors at the house next to us that are renting for the weekend. I think it's probably some. <laughs> they're, they're probably outside hearing this bird make all these crazy <laughs> noises. <laughs> And I think they're from India. They don't speak English. I, I, I believe they're from India. So they probably don't even understand what the bird's saying. <laughs> well. It's hilarious. That crazy bird. That crazy bird. It is crazy bird. Hey, you know what? Sanitation, very important factor in staying healthy in rural homesteads and survival scenarios. You know, last time I talked about rodents and how you can rodent-proof your house and make sure you prevent rodents from becoming unwanted guests and maybe transmitting diseases or diseases that rodents can pass from people, uh, from animals to humans. And that is a big issue. And of course, there are a lot of different uh, animals in the rodent family of beavers, porcupines, squirrels, and gophers. And we talk, of course, you're not going to have an infestation of beavers well, in that's, your home you know, that's or funny. porcupines in your home. I was just going to, so. I was just, yeah, I think you read my mind. I was just going to say, um, I'm not sure there's been a whole lot of reports of mm-hmm. an infestation of families of beavers <laughs> living <laughs> up in your attic. <laughs> but these animals, not these, not beavers, but uh, rats and mice cause a significant amount of environmental <laughs> and economic damage. They're one of the world's, some of the world's most invasive species. Oh, wait, though. And a percentage of the food supply, I want to say this, uh-huh. is contaminated by their droppings or urine, their hair. A percentage of the entire world's food supply is down to two because of these animals. That's terrible. Well, I, I was just going to say something funny. If you did have beavers, can you imagine the damage they would do to your wooden house? <laughs> yeah, they would They'd chop it down. chew it up and drag it into the, the lake or river or creek <laughs> where they live. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to go check on that crazy bird. All right. In a recent video, we talked about the importance of keeping rodents and the diseases out of your retreat. And now I'm going to talk about what happens if those guys are already there and you need to deal with them. If you're not sure that your home, by the way, is currently rodent-free, there are a few things you need to consider. You need to look for partially eaten food, uh, containers that might be gnawed at a little bit, nesting material. Um, You should inspect your home's interior at night with a flashlight because they like to come out at night. And especially look closely at the bases of the wall, the base, the baseboards. Rats and mice have a tendency to travel along there. That's their route. They don't travel, if they can help it, across the middle of the room. And also, by the way, if you have areas of the house that are very little used or very infrequently visited, your attic, things like that, maybe your basement, then you should definitely look at those, especially at night. Uh, rodent droppings are pretty obvious and Mice and rats defecate 50 times a day sometimes. So if they're in your home, you're going to be able to find your, their droppings usually along the floorboards and attic crawl spaces, maybe in the basement. Those, if, if you 
want to also check for rodent tracks, what you could do is you can set out a thin layer of flour or talcum powder by areas through which the rats and mice might enter your home. You could place some as well along floorboards uh, and these tracks will alert you to their presence. Of course, it's useful to have cats and dogs in the house. They can be efficient mousers. They might not be so efficient. They might look at them or bark at them, but at least they'll give you an idea when there's a rodent around. Uh, at night, if you've ever had, I've had rats in the in the in the walls, and believe me, they do a creepy scrabbling noise uh, inside the walls at night. Or and of course they squeak. So that's another way that you can tell. And sometimes unusual smells because of their urine, you might notice a weird odor. Now, once you've figured out that you've got rats or mice in your home, it's probably time to reduce the population because that population, a, a pair of rats, if, if the, all of their offspring survive, you will have a heck of a lot of, of, a heck of, a lot of rats in your area in a very, very short time. Long-term long control is really difficult, by the way, if, if you don't keep the indoors and outdoors clear of a lot of debris, clear of certainly dog food and, and cat food. Well, we talked a little bit about this last time. Definitely check out last week's show if you want to know more about that. There are a lot of different mouse and rat traps on the market and, and certainly a number of poisons that are available to kill rodent invaders. Uh, it makes more sense to use traps, in my opinion, as poisons may leave you with a bunch of dead, rotting animals inside your walls. Not a good thing because these guys take a while to rot. And okay, that's disgusting. And the stench. I'm well, trying to eat a well, you shouldn't here. be you shouldn't be eating while I'm, I'm talking about dead rats. Oh my gosh. And and the stench could last a month or more. <laughs> Sometimes you have to insert deodorant through a hole drilled in the wall. I mean, I've seen actually uh, people have to do that. Now, if you have a lot of rats in your yard, you shouldn't use poison because they could be ingested by neighborhood pets, your pets, or even your children. So you better watch out with regards to that. You should consider trapping boxes. There are special boxes that you could use that have snap traps in them or electronic zappers or glue traps. Uh, there's even catch and release versions. Uh, and both rats and mice will readily go for bait like uh, fresh peanut butter they love that i mean you can put cheese there but they'll believe it or not they actually like i think fresh peanut butter better now if you're soft-hearted with this these catch and release traps you have to remember that brown rats black rats the most common rats in the country and house mice not field mice but house mice are not native wildlife besides other damage these invasive species will cause casualties among uh for example uh, songbird eggs, and a lot of our songbirds are being endangered now because of cats and rats. So if you release rats into the forest, then you're not releasing them into their native habitat. You're releasing them into an area where they can do damage to the actual natives of that habitat. Now, glue traps, they're popular, but they're actually pretty controversial. They're better weapons against mice than rats. Uh, and unfortunately, they leave you with, usually, with a live animal to kill. If you have to use them, you can use, uh, if you have to use these glue traps, you can euthanize the rodent by throwing the trap and the animal into a bucket of water. 
Or you can strike it with a stick several times just behind the head. That'll do it, too. Okay, still gross. Still gross. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the whole topic is sort of. I know. It's, it's good education, but yikes. All right. All right, folks, don't eat during the show. <laughs> now, another disadvantage of glue traps is that they lose their effectiveness in extreme temperatures, uh, and they also lose their effectiveness in areas that accumulate a lot of dust. If there's a lot of dust on the glue trap, they're less sticky. Uh, snap traps, this is how you should put them down. Put them If you're putting them in the house, place them in perpendicular fashion against the wall with the, uh, the bait side, especially against the wall. Never just use one trap. Place a number of them several feet apart in what you think the rodent's usual route is. Traps can be fastened to pipes, by the way, or wire, because rats and mice go up and down uh, these, these things vertically. So that's something. You could use wire or rubber bands to keep them in place. Now, when you're cleaning out a building that's been infested with rats or mice, there are specific safety precautions you got to follow to avoid uh transmitting infection or, or having other complications. First and foremost, remember you should never handle any wild animals, uh, rodents especially, alive or dead, without disposable gloves. And if you're doing a lot of cleaning in the house, you might consider wearing some a surgical mask or some other mask so that you don't breathe in dust and dander and things like that. Could, some people could be allergic to this stuff. Uh, other steps you should follow is you, when you're cleaning things out, open windows and doors before cleaning, and that will be useful for ventilation purposes. You might consider waiting a little while before you start uh, doing all your work. Uh, avoid raising a lot of dust if, you all, if, if at all possible. Uh, steam clean carpeting and upholstery that have been in, in houses that have had a lot of uh, rodent infestations. Uh, you want to clean all surfaces with maybe a dilute bleach solution or other household disinfectant, and you want to certainly soak areas that held dead animals or rat nests or a lot of rat droppings. If you have bedding and linens, pillows in that area, always wash them in hot water. Use the high heat setting on your dryer as well. If there's an insulation material that's been contaminated by rodent urine or feces or a bunch of nesting material, you probably should replace that. Now, interestingly enough, ultraviolet light can kill viruses. What you want to do is you want to place contaminated items that can't be thrown away, such as important documents, outside in the sun for several hours, and that might be good. You might have some uh, UV light. It's raining, and the bird just said water. <laughs> it's raining, it's and the raining. bird just said water. I just brought the bird in here. Yeah, it's a smart bird. He knows when there's water. He's it was raining, he just said water. That's so funny. <laughs> All right, well, anyhow, back to what I was saying. So, uh, so you want to, well, pretty much quarantine items that are especially risky in a, in a rodent-free area, if it's a child's toy or something like that. You might want to give it enough time for any particular bugs to be, uh, or, or germs to be inactivated. Now, if they're contaminated items or dead rodents, you want to put them in a plastic bag, then place those in an exterior garbage can. And, of course, after you clean, you better wash your hands thoroughly, and you might even consider showering with soap and water. You know, we share our world with so many other creatures, and, and some of these guys invade our homes. They can damage our possessions, and more importantly, they can affect our health. So with careful attention to sanitation and the occasional... Occasional surgical strike, 
you might be able to eliminate some of these unwanted guests and make our homes safe environments for our families in good times or bad. Let's see what we got here. Oh, I wanted I definitely wanted to talk about this. You know, we've been in an epidemic of op opioid abuse for a long time in this country. It's getting it's been getting worse over the years. There's so many times that you hear about somebody dying of a of an overdose of heroin or or something else and now we're seeing an epidemic of something called hepatitis C. Hepatitis is an inflammation of the liver and we are seeing a lot of different issues with regards to it. I'll talk about that in a second, but I just want to mention that new hepatitis C viral infections in the United States have nearly tripled between the years 2010 and 2015. The number of new nationally reported infections uh, are mostly apparently among 20 to 29 year olds. And what's going on with these kids, uh, these young people, basically they're the people that are doing the most injecting of drugs. And this is according to a new report released by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And you wanna know something? This is just the tip of the iceberg. The CDC really thinks that the true number of people with hepatitis C is actually much higher, maybe 34,000 new infections a year since hepatitis C uh, has very few symptoms, at least at first, and most newly infected people really don't get diagnosed. And actually people who are at the highest risk oftentimes just don't go to get medical care. There's an estimated 3.5 million U.S. citizens, usually baby boomers, that have hepatitis C, and this is a, a common blood-borne virus, not that common, but common enough to affect affects more than 3 million people in the U.S. Uh, hepatitis, as I said, means inflammation of the liver, and the symptoms to look for include fever, abdominal pain, um, malaise, loss of appetite, you may feel nauseous, you may vomit, joint pain, and sometimes people even get jaundice. That's where your eyes and skin become yellowish as a result of derangement of the enzymes in the, li uh, the, uh, uh, enzymes in the liver. Last year, there was actually a record number of fatalities from the virus. And most of it comes from injecting drugs. And guess what? Most of it is not in the inner city. Most of it is in rural and suburban areas. And hardest hits are places like where I'm at right now, parts of Appalachia and rural areas of the Midwest, even New England. There are seven states, Indiana, Kentucky, Maine, Massachusetts, New Mexico, Tennessee, where I am right now, and West Virginia that have rates that are at least twice the national average. In addition, 10 states have rates that are of concern as well, 10 additional states, that's Alabama, Montana, New Jersey, North Carolina, Ohio, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, Utah, Washington, and Wisconsin. The road to opioid abuse, that starts with prescription pills for most people and eventually leads to injectables like heroin. And a lot of these drugs actually are becoming cheaper and much more easily available. These folks are the ones that are most commonly infected as a result with hepatitis C. It could also be transmitted, by the way, through sexual contact or during a pregnancy between a mother and a baby. There's no actual vaccine for hepatitis C. There are 
some other there are other types of hepatitis that might be treatable with vaccines, but hepatitis C is not one of them. And best way to prevent hepatitis C is to avoid behaviors that can spread the disease, uh, especially injecting drugs, and and that's of course according to the CDC. Now, some believe states can reduce the number of people that are risking a hepatitis C infection by adopting laws and policies that would increase access for IV drug users to services intended to prevent and treat the infection, like decriminalization of the free distribution of clean needles to addicts or the unrestricted sale of needles to drug users without, for example, disclosing names to law enforcement. So basically, as you can see, they're, are trying, they're trying to deal with this epidemic by being more permissive or by decriminalizing it. And, mm. it, and you see that a lot of you people for drug offenses, oh. right, are, a lot of people with drug offenses are, are now really not being put in prison as a result. And I can understand that with users, but they're doing that with dealers also. Yeah, well, the dealers need to be dealt with differently. You know, I think we saw that they're putting some vending machines free, yes. free vending machines for clean needles. I forget what state is doing that. Right. I actually put like it. Like a vending machine that you just, you know, push I, A1. Yeah, I put a picture of that up on our Facebook page. I remember. Okay, yes, yes. So, you know, it's a rock and a hard place. D does that mean you're enabling these people to continue to use their drugs, you'd making it a little easier, yes, but the alternative is that these diseases are going to be spread more if they all use the same dirty needles. Right. The thing is, if they... And, and share them. Right. There so, are needle exchange programs where you can bring in your used needles and get fresh ones. Right. But that's certainly not discouraging the use of drugs. It's hope maybe making a difference. It might okay. make a difference or it might not make a difference in hepatitis C or some other things. As a matter of fact, let me tell you about what the CDC found. They found that state that several states, mm -hmm. Massachusetts, New Mexico, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Washington, with permissive policies okay. capable of improving access to preventive and treatment services, for example, needle exchanges, uh, special counseling, other strategies, that all of these states are the ones that have the highest rates of hepatitis C infections. So it's not helping so far. This, so, this free needle program exchange or vending machines is not making any difference in the disease levels right the still, infection rates and and this is even affecting <sighs> the next generation remember i said that it can occur in people that occurs often in people that are 20 to 29 well a lot of women are having babies during that period of time and the rate of hepatitis c right. in women of reproductive age you might hear the bird the bird in the is background. agreeing and Pregnant women parallels the opioid epidemic. Uh, hepatitis C has increased among young women, and uh, as a result, since it can be passed to the baby, I guess to the I guess to the babies. Right. And I don't even know what generation that is. Are they called millennials too? I uh, no, <laughs> they're way past that. They have like two or three monikers after that. <laughs> so, I'm not sure. What, I should find out with the babies being born today or, or going to be called. I don't even know if they have a term yet. So anyhow, in the last uh, five years, the rate of hepatitis C infection among U.S. women giving birth has doubled. And so that is 
a major issue. And guess what? Those poor babies. It's the high. It's the, not their choice. Right. So and, sad. And the higher rate in pregnant women is in places like rural Appalachian counties in Tennessee. And that's exactly where we are right at this moment. So that is pretty amazing. Now, there are some obstacles to treating these folks, and these obstacles are very, very difficult to surmount. I mean, first, it's hard to identify and then treat people who inject drugs unless they actually seek help uh, or they're actually caught by, let's say, law enforcement with drugs in their possession. I mean, they, these people don't regularly get med- necessarily get regular medical care. Some of them do and, and seek help, but some of them don't. Uh, secondly, there are limitations on reimbursements of payment for medications to treat hepatitis C virus. Some of these are very new treatments, and not all of them have a, received approval for funding, and unfortunately, they're not cheap. The price of these treatments for hepatitis C generally range from about 60000 and 90000 for a standard 12-week course of treatment. Luckily, uh, some pharmaceutical companies are making deals with insurance payers, and this is reducing the cost. But still, that's even at a discount, that's a lot of money. Third, of course, there, in many places, there just isn't a coordinated effort to get patients plugged into medical care so they can beat their addictions and maybe avoid becoming infected or reinfected with hepatitis C. There, It's just uh, an issue where there's just so much money. We've seen how expensive um, trying to give medical care to everybody is, and it, the prices are not going down, ladies and gentlemen. Fourth, there needs to be an increased effort to prevent these products from entering the United States. There just aren't a lot of places in the U.S. that grow opium poppies or process them into heroin. It's mostly coming from elsewhere and and usually entering the country from the southern border. If you don't have a supply, it's hard to keep the increase of those people addicted to that supply. uh, It's hard to keep that going. It's hard for more people to get addicted to something if there's less of a supply. And this is a strategy that might help decrease the the opioid epidemic, but you just don't hear about it, certainly in the media, except to criticize any efforts to defend the southern border, which you just have to realize that it's not a matter of just immigration, but it's a matter of drugs. And regardless of your political stripes, you should admit the drugs have a pretty easy road into the United States, and most of it's coming from down south. If you have some extra time, I'd like to read what the generations are. Yeah. When you get a Let me just, I have one yeah, last no, thing to up. say. No, That's the fifth thing, and that is that we need to be open to alternatives that give opioid-like effects but aren't injectable opioids. Now, recently, a plant that had these exact properties called Kratom, or Kratom, K-R-A-T-O-M, look it up, was banned by the FDA after it was implicated, along with some other drugs, uh, in uh, <clears throat> one death uh, in the last few years in the United States. But meanwhile, there are 10,000 or more deaths from opioid overdoses during the exact same period. Now, I'm not saying that it's like taking an aspirin, but it's certainly less deadly than heroin. And the FDA should reconsider its very abrupt decision to outlaw the herb. It actually made the decision and gave you like three weeks or so to to, uh, get off 
using this particular herb. If you look on YouTube, you'll see a number of testimonials by people that used the herb, kratom, and uh, they really actually felt that it helped them get off the hard drugs. And, of course, they're bemoaning the fact that it's no longer available. It's a bit, pretty big issue. Okay, so what were you oh, telling? Well, wait, I, I do want to mention something on your topic. Is There's actually a company called Cara, C-A-R-A, and they are testing a cure and an alternative. I, I don't know if I can call it a cure, but an alternative medicine that takes care of pain with none of the opioid effects. Ah. It doesn't de decrease your nervous system. It doesn't make you groggy. It doesn't make you doped up. It doesn't make you high, but it takes care of your your pain. That's C-A-R-A? CARA, right. And it's actually, they finished um, phase one of a safety trial. That In this safety trial, they were um, measuring respiratory mm. depression. Oh. And it did not differ from the for the from the placebo which was the sugar pill um okay anyway uh, that's so awesome. some good possible future <coughs> results yeah. there yes no the generations oh you were gonna tell me about yeah generations? this is very cool all right we're almost out of time, okay okay so. okay i'm gonna work backwards then we're gonna say gin alpha gin alpha gin, yeah generation is called gin alpha is born 2011 to 2025 generation z is 1996 to 210 Y is the millennial next gen. That's a, can be called two things. 1980 to 1995. Generation X was 1965 to Generations between wars, uh -huh. 1901 to 1913, and the lost generation, also called the generation of 1914, was from 1890 to 1915. Wow, so every generation has had its name. Yes, isn't that cool? That is cool, but we are out of time. You have been listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe and Amy Alton. We thank you so much for listening in and hope you'll tune in next week. The bird says bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.